the of Hebrews middle schoolers are dismissed at this time as they'll be going up to the youth room. The rest of us, we're going to continue with their study of the book of Hebrews. It's been a few weeks since we've been in Hebrews, so if you'll turn to chapter 7, we'll begin reading at verse 18. So the back in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 7, we'll begin reading at verse 18. If you need a Bible, Pastor John has some in his hands as he's in the back. If you're towards the front, you can pick one up off the front platform. But the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews chapter 7 as I said, it's been a few weeks since we've been in Hebrews because of Resurrection Sunday and then also Palm Sunday, and I was teaching at Calvary Aurora. But one of the things that uh, I hope and pray that if you've been with us in our study of Hebrews, that um, it has been a tremendous blessing to you. This epistle is full of such wonderful truths and very important for us Christians to understand what is being t told to us here in the book of Hebrews. And I know it gets a little bit technical, and um, there's a lot of theology that's in it, but what we want to do is we want to know, we want to, to really uh, see what it means for you and for me as believers, as this epistle has been telling us that Jesus is superior. He is superior to any religious system or any religious person or any created being. That would include the angels. So you don't look to those things that truly cannot make you righteous before God. And it isn't about being religious. Now, we know that religion is man's effort to become acceptable and righteous before God. And that's what the religions of the world tell us. The religions of the world say and are based on this is what you do to gain God's approval or to earn salvation or to be righteous. And as we were reminded even last week on Resurrection Sunday, that true Christianity, our faith is not based on what we have to do. It is based on what he did, right? He went to the cross and died for our sins, and he resurrected from the grave. He conquered sin and death. And there is nothing that we can do in and of ourselves, in our works, in our efforts, in our striving, that will provide a right standing before God, because we all fall short of the glory of God is what Romans declares to us. And even Paul, when he was writing that first epistle that we have recorded of Paul in the New Testament, Galatians, that in chapter 2, verse 16, he writes that knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So the writer of Hebrews here, we don't know who exactly the human instrument was, that wrote these words down. We know the ultimate author is the Holy Spirit, but perhaps Paul the Apostle, uh, maybe translated in Greek by Luke, Dr. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts and, and Luke's Gospel. But the author here, the writer in Hebrews, beginning in chapter 5, if you've been with us, in our study of this epistle, brings to us that Jesus' priesthood is a superior priesthood superior to the Old Testament, uh, Aaronic, Levitical priesthood, uh, and that there was a need for a new priesthood. Jesus, he is a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And the Levitical priesthood, as we saw in this chapter, in verse 11, never made anything perfect. In other words, as we continue to see that that truth is going to be pressed and told to us again and again through chapter 10, if the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament could truly take away sin once and for all, could make a man or a woman truly righteous before God, think about it, there would be no need for another priesthood, would there? 
God would not introduce a new priesthood if it wasn't necessary, and certainly he wouldn't introduce an inferior priesthood. But Jesus, who is our superior high priest, comes from a superior priesthood, a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, quoting from Psalm 110, that messianic psalm. And that's where we left off there at verse 17. So let's pick it up at verse 18, again of Hebrews chapter 7. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And as we read this, again, the point is the law is unprofitable. And what that means is that we cannot count on the law to make us perfect because we're sinners. You see, to understand, even as Paul would write in the book of Galatians, there was a purpose of the law. And what was the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law, first of all, was to show us that we're sinners. You see, the law doesn't declare us righteous. There's nothing wrong with the law itself. That is God's standard. The, the law is perfect, but the thing is you and I are not perfect. So what the law does is it declares you and I as being guilty. It shows us that we break the law and we need our high priest Jesus who comes. And again, in the Old Testament, the people continually, day after day for 1,500 years, uh, close to that, that they would bring their sacrifices to the priests ever since the days of Moses. And they would do it daily. They would bring the sin and trespass offerings. And it didn't stop. And there was a need for a high priest who offered a superior sacrifice. As we're going to see that as we progress here, there's going to be truth built upon truth here that we're going to see. Making uh, the, the, the point and stressing to you and to me how superior Jesus is, that he is better, that he is sufficient what he did for you and for me. So here we need a superior priesthood and high priest. And I love verse 19 here, for the law made nothing perfect, again being told to us just as it was in verse 11, and it could not, in other words, provide us with a true lasting righteous standing before God. And we need to understand that as Christians. And we need to rest in that. Because there are Christians today that will put themselves under some kind of law. They do it to, to try to gain the approval of God, to declare themselves righteous, uh, to earn salvation, they feel like. Uh, I have to do this thing. There are those who will come along and say that you are not saved unless you do this religious act unless you are baptized. Now, I'm not saying being baptized is not important, but it doesn't bring salvation. It declares that you are saved. That's a public declaration of that. If you worship on this day, then you can be served. You have to do something to earn salvation. Put yourself under some law, uh, whatever it is, to gain the approval of God. And you see, the law condemns us. The law made nothing perfect. I would underline that in your Bible. And, of course, we want to live for God. And I think that's what the mindset of some people is. Well, you can't stress grace too much that we live under grace. Because what's going to happen, Pastor, if you don't bring the law and put people under the law, then you're going to have a carnal congregation and people are going to be living in sin. And it's not true. And Paul, in Romans chapter 6, he would say, should we continue in sin that grace abounds? He said, certainly not. And he goes on and he says that now that we're in Christ, we identify with Christ, 
We live in that newness of life. We live in that new resurrected life. And see, living in grace doesn't mean that we just live any way that we want to. Living in grace understands this, that there's nothing that I can do to gain God's approval, that Jesus Christ did the work on the cross, he rose from the grave, he validated what he did, and bring in forgiveness of sin, taking a sin away once and for all. That is a term that we're going to see as we continue through this epistle. And he sits at the right hand of the Father, ever making intercession for you and for me, and we come in faith, trusting in what he did, and it becomes real. It becomes to where we identify with Christ and we live in that newness of life. And so we're not free to go out and sin under grace. We're free to live for him. Do we understand that? And see, there's a big difference. It isn't just about duty, but it's about devotion. It isn't about I have to, but I get to because the Lord died for me. And, and God lives in my heart by the Holy Spirit, and I am free from the penalty of sin because of what Jesus Christ did for me. And now he lives in my heart so I can live for him as he empowers me so I'm not in, you know, under the, the power of sin, but I'm free to live for my Lord. And that's a huge difference because you have relationship. You don't have religion. And I think that that's what the writer of Hebrews is really stressing to you and to me. And we need to be established in that. And, and we have a heart that says, I want to live for you. You will do more in love than you will do under the law. Because the greatest law is what? Love. Even as Paul would write. That the law can be summed up in one word, and that is love. So we live for him, and, and to understand that our hope is not in the law, it's in a better hope, and that is Jesus, through which we draw near to God as we read. Let's continue verse 20. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So again, as Psalm 110, this messianic psalm that is just a psalm that speaks of Messiah that would come on the scene. And Psalm 110 is, is being quoted several times here as we have seen uh, in this chapter uh, that, um, you know, a psalm speaking of Jesus, telling us that Jesus was made high priest by the direct oath of God. So when Jesus is told that as the reader, the initial reader, who has Judaism in his background that, that would know the Old Testament, they would think, what do you mean Jesus is a priest? He didn't come from the tribe of Levi. He wasn't a direct descendant of Aaron. How can you say that he's a priest? Well, they're being reminded that he didn't come from the Levitical order, Jesus, but he comes from a superior priesthood, a priesthood that will last forever, and he would then the writer take them back to Psalm 110, and they would say, of course, those Hebrew believers. Of course, how could we miss that? What Psalm 110 declares to them, and so it makes sense to them as this is being developed in verse 22, by so much more Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Not only do we have a better priesthood in Jesus, but we also have a better covenant. So what we're seeing here as we continue on is that the book of Hebrews continues to press truth upon truth. You know, to press the point that he's our perfect high priest. 
And we're going to see as we move on, he ministers in a superior sanctuary. He brings a better covenant, as we are told here, based on better promises and thus a better hope. Let's continue to explore that, verse 23. And also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost, I like that, those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Because Jesus is a priest forever, he continues forever, he has an unchangeable priesthood, therefore he is able to save. He saves to the uttermost. And as you go to the Old Testament, you would think back to when Moses came to the mountain of God, and as God made a covenant with them, that the, the priesthood was established. And it was from Aaron, who was the brother of Moses. You recall that Aaron was Moses' spokesman uh, for a while because Moses stuttered. But Aaron would be the first high priest. He was the one that would go behind the veil into the presence of God, the tangible presence of God, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And it was covered by the mercy seat. And he would sprinkle the blood there of the sacrifice to make atonement for the nation and he did that year after year but his priesthood would come to an end you read in numbers chapter 20 that aaron dies so his son eleazar becomes the high priest and he would die and then for all those years those centuries we see that every one of those high priests would end up dying and they couldn't save they couldn't take away sin once and for all jesus alone is our salvation and it's going to be pressed to us that he is the one that took away sin once and for all by offering himself. And he will always be there for us. And I want us to understand that he always lives to make intercession for us. And I think that verse 25 that we read here is really the very heart of the gospel. You see, the high priest such as Aaron interceding on behalf of the people, giving the sacrifices and, and on behalf of, of the nation and for the people. Aaron died, then Eleazar died, their priesthood ended. But Jesus is forever a superior priesthood. Whoever lives to make intercession for us. It reminds me of what John in his epistle writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. That if we sin, we have an advocate, right, with the Father, a defense attorney, uh, Jesus Christ the righteous. We know that Paul, when he was writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, would say that there's one God and one mediator between God and man, that is the man Christ Jesus. There's only one mediator between man and God, truly, and that is Jesus Christ. And when Satan, who is called the accuser of the brethren, as Revelation chapter 12 says, that he accuses us day and night, that when he brings up that accusation, that you've sinned here, and did you see what Jeff did, and, and he sinned, and he transgressed, and he did that, it, it doesn't, that charge doesn't hold because Jesus is our advocate. He's the, our defense attorney. He's the one that made atonement for sin. He took my sin upon himself. He paid the price for it. He is our mediator, and he's our intercessor that sits at the right hand of the Father, ever making intercession for you and for me. Isn't that glorious? No one else can do that. And as we finish the chapter, verse 26, for such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy and harmless and undefiled and separate from sinners, 
and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints on high priests men who have weakness, that is, they were sinners themselves. But the word of oath which uh, came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. So I really kind of want us to understand what is being stressed here in this epistle and what we have uh, seen in this chapter. Because what can happen is this. We, we read this book today, we, we go through these verses, and it starts to get a little bit technical. We're, we're talking about the Levitical priesthood and Jesus after the order of a, another priesthood. And to us, we can think, is this really important? I mean, is this really significant to me? Is it relevant? We hear that term today, you know, in the church, that we want to make it relevant. And is it really meaningful to me? There's a lot of theology, a lot of terminology, things drawn out of the Old Testament rituals and sacrifices and duties of the priest. Does it really concern me? Does it have meaning for me? And I think that we can fail to really see the significance of what is being said here. Priesthood is important to us as Christians simply because Jesus that not only has it been declared to us that he's our merciful high priest earlier in the epistle, that he's our sympathetic high priest, he's our compassionate high priest, but also we need to understand that he is our perfect high priest. You see, the priest, the high priest, were to be consecrated as you read the Old Testament, that is, set apart for the things of God, to be holy unto God. And the priests, they were there to help the people with the sacrifices. And that was their access to God. When they brought the animal to the priest for the sin and trespass offerings, that as they did that, it was a covering for sin. It did not take away sin once and for all. And that's going to be explained as we continue going through this epistle. It was a kofar in the Hebrew. It was a covering of sin until the one Lamb of God who came and died for our sins, as the term is going to be used here once and for all. That's what Jesus did for us. So here's the thing. Think with me. You would come with the sin offering. You come with the trespass offering to the priest. You would come and, and give a free will offering, the burnt offering, which was an offering of worship. You gave the peace offering, which was an offering of fellowship with the Lord. All those sacrifices explained to us in Leviticus chapter 1 through 7. Now, you don't want to follow a priest who can't bring you to God, right? You don't want to follow a priest who doesn't have access to God. Even in the New Testament, the New Testament Gentiles, they, many of them, were religious. And what I mean by that, they believed in idols. They, they believed in many idols, and they had priests. And whatever idol that you were going to worship that day, the priests, you would do sacrifices as well. And that's why in 1 Corinthians you have that whole issue if, as you read that meat offered to idols. And it was stumbling some of the Christians. And what was happening is there in Corinth they had all these idols and all these temples and altars. And you would go and you bring a sacrifice. And part of the meat was given to the priests. And then part of the meat was given to, you know, little meat market there that they would get and you would be able to go and buy meat at a discount that's a study for another time but you got to remember that the gentiles 
they had religion. They had pagan priests that were bringing sacrifices as well. And they weren't bringing the people to the true and living God. So my point is you don't want to follow a priest where God says that that sacrifice and, and that devotion and that prayer is unacceptable. And here's the key for you and for me. But Jesus Christ, he is our perfect high priest. And he is a priest. It belongs to a priesthood that is forever. Based on he died for our sins. He rose from the grave. He was perfect. In other words, he had no sin. He didn't have to offer a sacrifice for his own sin like the Old Testament priests had to. But rather, what he did is he offered up himself. And he is our access to God, period. Even as we saw in the previous chapter, that he went behind the heavenly veil. He is the forerunner, as we read, and others will follow who believe in him. And in chapter 4, verse 16, our compassionate high priest, that we can come boldly into the throne of grace. That would really mean something to those believers, those Hebrew believers, because only the high priest was allowed to go behind that veil into the Holy of Holies where the tangible presence of God was. Only him, everybody else was left out, and it was only one day a year for a short time. And now they are being told, really, that I can come into the throne of grace? In time of need to receive grace and mercy any time I want? And I can stay as long as I want. And I can do it as many times as I want. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for you and for me, our perfect high priest. Do we understand the significance of that? And that's why I say to you that Jesus is sufficient for forgiveness and salvation. That Jesus is the way, the truth in the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Sometimes I will hear people who claim to be Christians. Well, I'm a Christian, but I'm also a Buddhist. And I'm a Hindu. And I believe in all kinds of different gods. And I'm sincere, and I believe you just be sincere. You can be sincere, but you can be sincerely wrong. And Jesus is our access to the true and living God that's being declared in the pages of God's word. The one who became the perfect sacrifice for you, the perfect high priest. And we're going to see the truth being built upon truth as we continue on. That he now is ministering in a superior tabernacle, heavenly tabernacle. Let's begin to look at that as chapter 8. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. When we read, now this is the main point of the things we are saying. It's not just a summary of, of things that is being stressed in the epistle or in the previous chapter, but in essence, what he is saying is, this is the crowning jewel, what I've said to you up to this point. And then he's going to stress that main point in the chapter before us. And the main point being stressed is we have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He sat down because he finished the work for salvation. You see, Aaron, the other priests, when they made sacrifices, they went in. They never sat down in the Holy of Holies. They went in. They came out. They went in. They came out. Next year, in and out. They were continually doing that because it was never finished. Jesus finished the work 
for forgiveness of sin and salvation for you and for me. And now we come in faith, turn to him in faith, to receive the free gift of salvation. And Jesus, being our high priest, is only access to God because he sits at the right hand of God. He is our mediator, making intercession for us. And those who had come out of Judaism, and for us today, this should be very significant to us. And what is being stressed is that there is a superior priesthood in Jesus who brings a better covenant and a better promise and a better hope. In verse 2, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. Jesus, our high priest, ministers in the true tabernacle. Now, it might be translated in your Bible, heavenly tabernacle. The true tabernacle, verse 2, not made by man, but by God. Now, there are those who suggest that what's being spoken of is this heavenly tabernacle is the church. Now, the church we know in the New Testament is called the temple of God. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, don't you know that you, plural, that, that we make up the, the temple of God? And then Peter, in his epistle, he says that we are living stones being placed together for a holy habitation. And, and so you and I are living stones being placed together. And that would have meaning to these Hebrew believers as well, even as in chapter 3, that Jesus has built a house in other words, they would look at the magnificent temple there in Jerusalem. Magnificent. The, the temple is believed that the building itself was 23 stories high, overlaid with gold. One of the wonders of the world. And they would see the smoke rising from the sacrifices. They would hear the trumpets that were blowing, uh, the people going up for worship, to celebrate the feast. All these things taking place, and, and here these Hebrew believers in the first century are looking at all that, and they're saying, wow, we missed that. That was a part of our lives. That's a part of you know, our culture. That was a part of our heritage for so long. And here they are being told that there is a house being built by God that's even more superior to that building, and that is a holy habitation of living stones that has been built for 2,000 years. So that was an important truth to them because the temple there, Herod's temple, would be destroyed in just a few years after this, this epistle was written. But I don't think that verse 2 here is, is talking about the church. I believe it's best to understand that there's a heavenly sanctuary, tabernacle, as we continue to explore this, verse 4. For if he, Jesus, were on earth, he would not be a priest since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law who served the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So the writer of Hebrews establishing that Jesus' priesthood was superior in the previous chapter. Now he ministers in a superior tabernacle or heavenly tabernacle. Verse 4, If he were here on earth, he would not be a priest. And Again, we talked about that, that Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi. He was not a descendant of Aaron. He was from the tribe of, of Judah. So the reader reading this would say, well, he couldn't be a priest. Well, he's from a superior priesthood, right, after the order of Melchizedek. 
and there needed to be a replacement of the Levitical priesthood, which could not provide forgiveness of sin. It only covered sin, could not provide salvation, could not provide that which is perfect. So Jesus, representing a superior priesthood, he offered a superior sacrifice, right? That is himself, and that is what is being referred to in verse 3 when it says it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. He laid down his life to atone for sin. Only Jesus did that. He wasn't just a martyr for a good cause. He went to the cross freely and willingly to die for you because there's a sin problem. To offer himself as a sacrifice to make atonement for your sin. And now what is being said is that this superior priest who offered a superior sacrifice, Jesus is the only one who qualified to serve in the heavenly tabernacle, the earthly tabernacle that Moses built, was just a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. So you go back to the book of Exodus. You read all those chapters there, out there in the wilderness, they came to the mountain of God. And then in Exodus chapter 25, we see that God came to Moses and said, Moses, that I want you to build this tabernacle, and there I'm going to meet with my people. It wasn't Moses that brought him to the mountain of God. And Moses said, well, now that we're a nation, I guess we should come up with some religious system, right? We should come up with some sacrifices. Let's build a tabernacle. I think it would be good if we just, you know, have this menorah thing and, and whatever it may be in the you know, altar out there in the outer court. And it wasn't Moses that did that. It was God that initiated. It wasn't Moses' idea. And I want you to know that God always initiates, and we're the one that responds to him. And Moses, I want you to build this tabernacle according to the pattern that I will show you. And so the earthly tabernacle out there in the wilderness with the animal skins and, and all the, the, the furnishings that is described to us there and uh, the curtains, the boards, the veils, the, the pegs, the utensils, the priestly garments, all those chapters, and we see that God would anoint a couple guys, Bezael and Ahoylahab, gave them understanding and wisdom and, and ability to be great craftsmen. You know, it reminds me of some, of some of you guys are great builders, great craftsmen. You're so gifted and talented in that. I wish I had that talent, you know, but I don't. He's given you understanding and wisdom and how to do that and knowledge and making those things just as it was in the Old Testament. And so Hebrews is telling us they were a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. And there is a heavenly tabernacle or temple that serves as a pattern for the earthly tabernacle. So that earthly tabernacle stood for 500 years. 40 years out there in the wilderness, they would go into the promised land. That tabernacle was at Gilgal for a while, then it was at Shiloh, and, and uh, eventually it would be done away with as Solomon's temple would be built. And when Solomon's temple was built, it was magnificent. Instead of one menorah in the holy place, they had ten menorahs. Instead of one shoe bread table, they had ten shoe bread tables and altars of incense and overlaid with gold. And as I've already mentioned to you, 
that Herod the second temple was very beautiful and it was one of the wonders of the world and it was standing at this time that this epistle is being written and the reader would be looking at that glorious magnificent temple and be drawn to that and what they are being told and what you and I are being told is that the heavenly tabernacle is even more glorious it is forever Herod's temple would be destroyed not one stone left upon another and Jesus priesthood is superior the priests would be done away with at that time. There hasn't been sacrifices there in Jerusalem for 2,000 years. And what they're being told is that it does not get any better than Jesus. I pray that you and I would really stand on that and get that into our hearts. There is nothing better than Jesus. No one else died for you because of his love for you. No one else rose from the grave. Only Jesus Christ did. And so as we finish this morning, now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. So the progression of truth here is Jesus presides over a superior priesthood in a superior sanctuary with a better covenant and a better promise. And I like what the writer here says, inspired by the Spirit of God, that Jesus has attained a more excellent ministry. And as we have talked about many times before, that no earthly priest could take away sin the way that Jesus did. Jesus has mediated for us a better covenant. It is a covenant, listen, of grace and not of works. It is a covenant marked by believing and receiving instead of earning and deserving. It's a new covenant. So don't go back to the old. Paul, when he was writing so many of these epistles in the New Testament, repeatedly and painstakingly told the Christians, you don't go back to putting yourselves under the law, particularly in the book of Galatians. He says, I fear for you that I minister to you in vain, that you go back to the weak and beggarly things. Galatians chapter 4, some of you observe days and months and the feast and all of that, but you're trusting in those things. Nothing wrong with learning about those things of the Old Testament, learning how it points to Jesus because as he writes in Colossians chapter 2, all those things are just a shadow of the reality, Jesus Christ. And now you have entered into a newness of the Spirit of God and it's no longer follow God based on, upon the law written on the tablets of stone, but now it's based on the law written on the tablets of your heart by the Spirit of God because it's real. And God lives in our hearts. And it isn't about religion, but it's about relationship and knowing him and understanding what he has done for you and for me. I want to encourage you this morning, now that it's afternoon, enjoy him. Walk with him. Learn of him. We are so blessed because he's done it all. And he's there at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you and for me. And even as Paul would write in the book of Romans, 
that as he freely gave us the very best in Jesus Christ, will he not also freely give us all things that are good? If he isn't giving you something right now, it's because it isn't good. Or he has something better. You, if you can trust him with your salvation, will you trust him with your life? Because God has given us the very best, his son, a superior high priest who did the work for you and for me. So enjoy him. Stand on his promises. Look to him. And may we also give that message that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. It's so wonderful to be a part of that which is true and that understanding that, Lord, thank you for what you did on the cross and rising from the grave. And now I have a living hope. I have forgiveness of sin. And I have right relationship with you, Father, that comes only through Jesus. So, Father, we thank you for, Lord, just this wonderful book that we're going through and it can get technical and we don't want to get lost in that we want him to go away just at awe and understanding what you have done for us and sending your son the son of god who came and died for us who made atonement for us who offered up himself the perfect lamb of god the perfect high priest and he rose from the grave no one else did that no one else even comes close to that. Jesus is truly Lord. And now we have forgiveness of sin. Those of us who come in faith, we have the hope of heaven. We have relationship with you. As you sit at the right hand of the Father, our mediator, our intercessor, our advocate. Lord, I pray that we become more real to us every single day. And I also want to pray for anyone that may be here. Maybe you've never surrendered your life and come in faith to Jesus. Maybe you put your faith in yourself or in a church or your own intellect, your own abilities. Maybe you put your faith in, in whatever it may be. Somebody else, something else. Those things fail. You can't save yourself. No one else can save you. A church can't save you. A pastor can't save you. No other religious leader, only Jesus. And if you've never come to him and asked for forgiveness and surrendered your life to him as Lord and Savior truly, your parents can't save you. It is you making that decision for Jesus. Will you do that today? It has eternal implications. The good news is this, that Jesus came and died for your sins and he rose from the grave and he's alive. An invitation is given to come to me, he says, to believe in him, to have eternal life and forgiveness. Come right as, just as you are. And you can pray, Jesus, I come to you and I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. I am a sinner. And I believe you died on the cross for my sins and you rose again. Your life speaking to me. And I understand that you are the one, the Son of God, who sacrificed for me was sufficient for forgiveness and you rose from the grave and you're at the right hand of the Father. I believe in you and I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior. And I want to walk with you to know you to live for you. If I can trust you with my salvation, I can trust you with my life. So I thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for dying for me. 
In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, Pastor Jim's going to be up front here. Will you come up as we close here in just a minute and tell them the decision that you made? We want to bless you and pray for you in any way that we can. Father, I just pray that you bless everyone here as we go our way, just holding on to these truths and being established in them and be able to express it to others. The world lives in such deception and darkness. But Lord, we have light and truth, and may we give it with love. So Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the work that you're doing in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand?